Well, please take your Bibles in hand now and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, as we finish out this this chapter uh, this morning, looking at verses 18 through 25. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 18 through 25, on page 602, uh, if you're using the church Bibles. Hear you, deaf. And look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways they would not walk? and whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of the battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit as ever we come to this wonderful, holy, inerrant, and infallible Word praying for the help of your Holy Spirit, that he would open our eyes to behold wonderful things here, that he would change our hearts by it. Amen. Well, there are times when reading and studying Scripture that we find ourselves coming up against what we could call an interpretive gap. Times when there are concepts used in Scripture that are so outside of our experience uh, that it can be difficult for us to comprehend just what is being described. One of these is Scripture's constant use of what we could call the royal motif, the description of God as king ruling over his people gathered into his kingdom. We just don't live in a world of sovereign rulers. Now, yes, there are some examples, perhaps, that we can think of just now. Autocratic rulers, one-man dictators who rule over their countries, but I think we all agree that these are not exactly examples of good government. Democracy is ingrained into our national identity. And since America's founding, representative democracy has spread around the world to the point that even the countries that still have monarchies are largely governed by elected officials. And so it can be hard for us to get our minds around all of the claims that are bound up in the description of the kingdom of heaven as an absolute monarchy. And as God's position as sovereign ruler over his people, it can be hard at times for us to grasp all of the concepts that are wound up in the running concept of God 
as an autocratic ruler of his people. Another concept that we struggle to get our minds around, perhaps more so, is the language of slavery that is used to describe God's relationship to his people. When we think of slavery, we cannot help but think of the horrors of North American chattel slavery. Kidnapped men and women having their humanity stripped away and treated as nothing other than property. Or we think of the modern-day slave trade. Vulnerable men and women, or perhaps especially we think of vulnerable boys and girls, trafficked around the world and sold to do the bidding of gangs often caught up in a world of drugs and prostitution. The idea of slavery, the concept of slavery, is one from which we rightly recoil, but it is a running motif in Scripture and one that we cannot avoid. One of the ways in which Scripture describes the relationship of God to His people is that of ownership. It's what's described so vividly in Romans 6, where Paul states the matter with a with a bluntness telling us that the choice that we face is not a choice between freedom and slavery, but rather the choice of to whom will we be enslaved. Romans chapter 6, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. To us who cherish our freedom, that language is stark and and shocking. But it's language that's employed throughout Scripture, and it's one of the fundamental concepts that described how Israel was to relate to God. Now, you remember my favorite passage in the Old Testament? Exodus 19. Verse 3, the Lord called to Moses out of Mount Sinai and saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession." among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's it's Romans 6, isn't it? But in the Old Testament, once Israel was enslaved in Egypt, enslaved in that living death, enslaved to a nefarious power that dominated them and oppressed them and abused them, but now Now that God has redeemed them from that slavery and rescued them from the hands of wicked slave masters, how were they to conceive of themselves? Not as free per se, but now as God's treasured possession, as possessed and owned by God as slaves of God. That's the language that Exodus 19 uses. They were to understand that the formative concept that was to shape and direct how they lived their lives from that point on was that they were owned by God and that He possessed them. But of course, 
underlying Romans 9 and Exodus, uh, Romans 6 and Exodus 19 is the understanding that to be enslaved to God is no harsh servitude. Right? In contrast to North American chattel slavery, in contrast to modern day slavery, in contrast to Egyptian slavery, to be owned by God is in reality to be brought into the best of all possible worlds. Right? What is it that is so horrific about slavery? It is that a human being is constrained to live wholly and entirely for the benefit and glory of another human being. Their life is conceived of existing entirely for the advancement of the one who keeps them enslaved. It is, I think, the most grotesque form of pride. The declaration that I think so much of myself that I believe that it is right and good to force another human being made in the image of God to forgo any notion of a right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness so that I can get richer, so that I can get more powerful, so that I can get what I want to get, right? We recoil at slavery because of how dehumanizing it is and how twisted the prideful logic that undergirds it. But what is man's chief end? What is the purpose of life according to the catechism? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And when we see it like that, we see that what makes slavery to another human being so monstrous is exactly what makes slavery to God so beautiful. It is the very thing for which we were made, to live for His glory, to live in His service, to subordinate ourselves to His rule. Augustine captured the thought in a famous prayer. It's been partly made famous because it was paraphrased by Thomas Cranmer in the Book of Common Prayer. Augustine wrote in this prayer, Lord, you are the light of the minds who know you, the life of the souls who love you, and the strength of the souls who serve you. Help us to know you that we may truly love you, so to love you that we may fully serve you, whose service is perfect freedom. It's a beautiful life because it's the life that we were made for. It's a life in which God has committed himself to watch over us, his dependents, to defend us and provide for us and direct us in the ways that we should go. And on our part, we submit ourselves to that direction, living according to His will and for His glory. It is a life that looks past the self and which delights when our God is glorified and magnified, a life to build on Augustine that understands that life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness are only truly found in a joyful, enjoying submission to the will of God. Now, that's why Exodus 19 leads to Exodus 20 and the giving of the law. Right? What is the point of the law? What is the point of the Ten Commandments? Right? You understand this is not new information that was being given to Israel. 
It was not that everybody just thought that, that robbery and, and, and murder was okay until Sinai. Right? The law of God, as Paul tells us in Romans, is written on the human heart. There were consciences that, that kept them going along these lines. So why the Ten Commandments made explicit? Because it was a description of the good will of God for His servant. It was a description, a manifest and manifold description of the righteousness that they were made for. It shows them, it shows us what it is to live, Romans 6, as slaves of righteousness. And in Psalm 119, that great love song to the law, there's a point in verse 97 in which the psalmist is so exulting in the law of God, so delighting himself in, in righteousness, so delighting himself in having God tell him what to do as the servant of God that he explains almost as if he can't keep it in anymore. He declares, oh, how I love your law. Now, how do you get to a point like that? How do you love law? We, we generally don't love law. I don't, I don't love being told I can only drive at 70 miles an hour. I don't always love OSHA regulations. It doesn't always thrill me with delight when I hear of a new legislative package that is passing through Congress. We tend not to love law. It seems so constraining. So how do you get to a point where, like the psalmist, you almost just can't keep it in anymore and just burst forth with this exclamation, oh, how I love your law. You only love law if you love the lawgiver. And only if you delight in having him tell you what to do because you are his treasured possession. Right? The slavery of the believer to God, it is not harsh servitude. It is not a disabling relationship in which our freedom is constrained, but it is the context of utmost flourishing, released from the need to protect ourselves, released from the need to provide for ourselves, released from the need to defend ourselves and figure out life for ourselves. We are now brought to a place where we simply rest in the knowledge that we belong to God and He is wholly good. But of course, when we look at the Old Testament, we don't see Israel delighting themselves in having God tell them what to do. But instead, as we read on from Exodus 19, we see the people of God chafe under God's rule and almost constantly seek to get out of that slavery. It's what's described here at the end of chapter 42. Here, Isaiah says, the servant of God, or, or I think better, the, the slave of God here, describing Israel, describing the Exodus 19 treasured possession of God, they have become deaf and blind. In verse 21, God says that He has magnified His law and He has made it glorious. Right? This is no fault on the, on the part of God. He has given them His law. He has shown them the glories of His, of His will. He has given to them everything that they needed for, for life and, and godliness. 
But in that moral law, those Ten Commandments, God had plainly given the, the foundation principles of what it means to live a life that loves the Lord their God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their mind and all of their strength. And, and in that law, He had shown them what it means to love their neighbor as themselves. And if that was ambiguous in, the, in what we could call the case law, of the ceremonial law that was to govern the rites and the rituals of, of worship, that, that the civil law that was to govern, govern the nation state of Israel, that second table of the law, those last six commandments, it, God had, had broken it down further in this case law and shown them specifically what it meant. And on all of it, it was entirely good. All of it led to a glorious freedom all of it produced a clarity about the way that they ought to live made in the image of God and redeemed by God. As God made His law explicit to His people, they were led out into the light of this new existence, living as they were made to live in humble and joyful dependence upon the Lord. But the calamity of Israel's history seen in that, in that downward trajectory that, that, that runs almost constantly through the Old Testament. Now, now not constantly. By, by the grace of God, there were, there were high points. By the grace of God, that descent was at times checked and plateaued and, and even ascended a little bit. But, but if you stand back, there's this almost constant trajectory down from the crossing of the Red Sea to here. When Judah has been taken into exile in, in Babylon, and on that trajectory, we see Israel turning a deaf ear to the law of God. It was there in plain language. It was there for them to be read and taught Deuteronomy 6 in the homes of Israel. It was Deuteronomy 6 to be bound on their hands and, and, and put on the, the doorposts, right? You understand the symbolism. It is saying that, that that all of life was to be lived in conscious acknowledgement and awareness of the law of God and who they were by virtue of their redemption. Israel had made themselves blind to the glories of the law. It was, it was there. In fact, it was symbolically depicted for them in the tabernacle and the temple and in the priesthood and in the sacrifices, all of it pointing to the graciousness of God, yes, but all of it pointing also to the truth that God was their gracious King. That He sat enthroned in their midst, His tabernacle, His temple, standing as this great symbolic palace, this monument to the crown rights of God over His people. But Israel would not listen. And Israel would not see, and they decided that they would live as they wanted to live. They decided that the way the nations lived around them was better than the way of God. Rather than living by faith in the promises of God and living trusting Him and His goodness, they chose to live by sight and run after the idols and the pleasures of the world, which promised not only rewards, but quick and easy rewards. They had decided that if they were to be truly free, 
then they needed to give expression to their desires and indulge their temptations. They had decided that the law of God was not the law of liberty, as James calls it, but was instead a shackle from which they needed to free themselves and run free and happy, free from his control to do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. But of course, as Paul says, the choice is not between freedom and slavery. And having rejected submission to God, they found themselves not free, but enslaved by their sin and its consequences. It's the very thing that's described in the first paternal appeal in Proverbs, isn't it? In Proverbs 1, the scene is set for us of a young man being enticed by the promises of a a violent gang. Come with us, they say. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. It's the perennial promise of sin. Let us indulge our pride. Let us live life on our own terms. Let us use other people for our own gain. Now, probably, hopefully, You haven't quite been in that same situation, tempted by a gang to a life of murder and robbery, but you understand the same dynamic lies under every sin. Let us live life for our own glory. Let us live life for our own gain. And who cares who we trample over and hurt on the way? As long as I get my way, then I'll be happy. As long as I don't have to deprive myself, then I'll be happy. As long as I get what I want, the way I want it, when I want it, then I'll be happy. You remember the father's warning to the son, Proverbs 1, 18? These men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such is the life of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. What promised life would only bring death. What promised joy would only bring sorrow. What promised freedom would only bring an awful slavery. Sin is a liar. And it never delivers what it promises. But it only ever consumes those who indulge it. You remember God's warning to Cain. Genesis 4, 7. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. One who indulges it. And so it proved for Israel. They had indulged their sin. They had given in to temptation. They had believed the lie of the devil, that same lie that he had brought to Eve in the Garden of Eden, that constant lie that that lies at the root of every temptation, the lie that the law of God is unduly restrictive. And to be truly free, then we must break free from it. But just as the father warned his son in Proverbs 1, it resulted in sorrow and it took away the life of its possessor. Verse 20, they had the law of God, but they chose to ignore it. And the result, verse 22, was not a life of joy and happiness and freedom, but instead they were plundered and looted, trapped and imprisoned. Instead of enjoying the blessings and benefits 
of living under the benevolent rule of a loving God. They had exchanged it for his wrath and his anger. And instead of protecting them and providing for them, God delivered them over to their enemies. But you understand that too was an act of grace and love. Sometimes the best thing that we can do for someone we love is let them make mistakes and let them see the end to which their bad decisions take them and let them feel the consequences of the choices that they have made. And that is what God did with Israel and with Judah. Instead of sovereignly intervening, which he could have done, He let out the rope, and He let them run, and they saw that all of His warnings of dire consequences, all of His warnings of only death being found in sin despite its promises of life, they were all true. God was not bluffing. And so they were delivered over into the hands of their enemies, these pagan nations that seemed to offer them the promise of sophistication, the glittering promises of urbane sophistication, that captivating world of international diplomacy, the heady world of treaties and alliances, that influx of alluring foreign customs. All of that resulted, like in Proverbs 1, with the life of its possessors being taken away. They left the service of God, not for freedom, but for slavery to sin. It bit them, and it dragged them down to once again being just like they were before the exodus. But notice, for all their suffering, they were not changed and they had not learned their lesson. Verse 25, so God poured on His servant Israel the heat of His anger and the might of battle. It set Him on fire all around, but He did not understand. It burned Him up, but He did not take it to heart. Now, we might be tempted to read that and think, come on, Israel. (laughs) Come on. I mean, it's been generations, right? Generations and generations of you trying to get out from under the law of God, and it has only ever delivered you suffering and sorrow. And now, now you are in Babylon as if the whole exodus has been reversed, and you are outside of the promised land again, and you are oppressed by a foreign power. How can you not take this to heart? But of course, it really shouldn't surprise us. It is, after all, one of the great lessons of God's covenant with Noah. What was it that we read in Genesis 8:21? after the flood receded? The Lord said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And that seems like an enormous non sequitur to us, doesn't it? We read that and we think, surely that is a mistranslation. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Well, why, Lord? Because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I think, surely that's a reason to curse the ground. But of course, this isn't a non sequitur. Instead, it teaches us about the deep-rooted nature of sin and the depths of our need for redemption. Sin is so bad 
that it cannot just be disciplined out of us. It cannot just be punished out of us. If we are to be saved from our sin, we need something else, something more total, something more thoroughgoing that kills sin at the root and replaces that evilly intentioned heart. And so it is here with Israel. In the years running up to the Babylonian captivity in 589 BC, when Judah is finally taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar, Judah has sat and watched northern Israel taken captive by the Assyrians. They have seen the promises, the warnings of God coming true. Judah has experienced the pain of, of military incursions into their territory. They have seen the warnings that the prophets brought them come true time and again. They have seen diminishing returns of their sin and faithlessness, but they did not learn their lesson. It's Albert Einstein reportedly, according to the internet, who said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. That is the insanity of sin. Sin has a stupefying effect on us, and it leads us to believe that if running after our sin did not produce the joy and satisfaction we expected, then the solution is to do it more. You see, our sin is so bad that we don't just need to be made better, we need to be made new. And so the gospel does not come to us with a moral improvement program, but it comes with the promise of a whole person transformation. That's why the Christian life is described in the New Testament in terms of totality. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or Ephesians 4, verse 22, Paul is describing coming to Christ, and he says coming to Christ is putting off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's the image not of a morally sick people being made a little better. It's the image of spiritually dead people being made alive. Or to use the images here, it is not the image of the spiritually short-sighted being given glasses, or the spiritually hard of hearing being given hearing aids. It's the image of the blind being given sight, the image of the deaf hearing, a total transformation that wholly reorients and gives life where sin had killed. And if there was one thing that is evident to the exiles sitting in Babylon, it was that they needed a deeper, fuller salvation. They needed to be made new. They needed their hearts to be reoriented back to God so that they could see and savor His goodness and the true blessedness of living in happy submission and service to Him. But how were they going to get it? Well, by faith, by faith in the singular servant of the Lord, and by His substitutionary saving work. 
Why is the servant of the Lord in chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, called the servant of the Lord when that's a name for Israel? It's because he would come and he would stand in the place of his disobedient people. And he would, as their substitute, as their representative, live a life of joyful obedience to God, submitting himself to the law, forsaking all temptation and pressing on in obedience, even to the point of death on a cross, where he would, as the substitute for his people, bear the wrath of God against them for their sin so that they could be forgiven and reconciled to God. One author put it like this. He said, the Apostle Paul explained in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God in Christ are yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God. Jesus, as the true Israel, receives the promises of God with regard to all the stipulations and promises of the covenant This means he said yes to the demand for perfect obedience, and he said yes to the curses that were threatened for disobedience. He did this as true Israel and representative of his people, just as he was the second Adam, obeying in every place where the first Adam failed to obey. He was, as true Israel, obeying where old covenant Israel failed to obey. Just a minute ago, we heard 2 Corinthians 5.17, that glorious declaration of the gospel that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But how does the apostle follow that? Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. It's just what we read a few weeks ago in the first servant song, isn't it? In 42 7, God said that the singular servant of the Lord would come, verse 6, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That's, that's this, isn't it? What was the solution that Israel needed? How could their blind eyes be opened? How could their deaf ears hear through the work of the servant, through the work of Jesus who came to bring his people up out of the dungeons of their sin and bring them back into the life and liberty of union with God and submission to God as his servants? And how would he do that? 42.6, by becoming a covenant for his people. That covenant that Jesus established when his body was broken and his blood spilt on the cross. That very thing that we remember and celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper, his body given for us, the new covenant established in his blood. Israel failed to live as God's treasured possession. His happy and holy servants, his happy and holy slaves joyfully submitting to his will and living to glorify and enjoy him. Israel failed to do what they were called to do, but Jesus didn't. He came as that substitutionary servant of the Lord, obeying where they failed, 
bearing the cost of their disobedience so that they might be made new and reconciled to God. And listen, this is the gospel for you this morning. This is not just a history lesson of how God once worked with an ancient people in a land far, far away. But rather, this is an object lesson. This is a picture painted that you might see your depravity, that you might see your salvation come in Jesus Christ. Where are you in this story? You are Israel. Like them, you have turned away from the promises of God. Like them, in your sin, you have chosen the false gospels of the world in which we live. In your sin, you have gone along with that Proverbs 1 gang, believing that it is better to indulge your pride, but in doing so, you have forsaken the true riches of submission to God. Now, maybe you grew up outside of the church and you have never heard these things but you understand the purpose of your life is the same as the purpose of any others. The chief end of your life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if you have not been doing that, then you have been on a road that will only lead to destruction. But maybe you grew up inside the church. Like Israel, you heard these things, but you chose to sin against knowledge and walk away. But listen, the solution is the same. The offer of the gospel is the same. Come to Christ and you will be made new. Come to Christ, the perfect Savior who has stood in the place of all those who trust in Him, and by faith in Him your sins will be washed away and your guilt will be lifted and you will be cloaked in His righteousness imputed to you. In your new life you will find joy and pleasures forevermore. If you're here this morning and you have not yet come to Christ, do it now. Do it today. There is no reason to delay. Sin is a liar. But Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and He says whoever comes to Him, He will never cast out. But if you're here and you have done that, you have come to Christ maybe years and years ago. Look again in this and see just how dire your spiritual condition was. And give thanks to God that by His grace and mercy you have been saved by the servant of the Lord. And rejoice. And verse 10, sing of this tremendous grace of God that while you were once blind, now you see. And while you once were deaf, now you hear. And all because of the love of God shown to you, an unworthy sinner. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, oh Lord, we so often convince ourselves that we are not that bad. But we thank you for your word that is honest and true. And it holds up a mirror for us, and we see just how foolish we are in our sin. Thank you, Father, that you are patient and kind with foolish people. Thank you for this free and abundant gospel. Thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ we have been restored, no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. Lord, help us to delight in that. 
Help us to delight in that every day and when temptation comes calling. Lord, may we rebuke the devil that he might flee from us, proclaiming to him the surpassing treasures of life with God. Amen.